0: Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts, Leah and Phoebe, will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to Your Gal Friday. I am Dr. Leah Leach. And
1: I'm Phoebe Freer.
0: Today, we are talking about a gal whose drive for adventure, speed, and adrenaline placed her in the record books to be the first woman at the Daytona 500 and the Indianapolis 500. But believe it or not, racing was her backup choice. She actually had her sights on something much faster. Today, we're talking about the life and legacy of your gal, Janet Guthrie.
1: Now, have you ever caught yourself slightly speeding down the highway? I mean, just, you know, maybe slightly, you know, uh, just a little too fast and feeling the change of the wind around you getting and getting a little startled and, and then slowing down after you feel like the, the shift in the I mean, no, just me. That might just be me. <laughs> no, I, but too. I, I mean, like, <laughs> me too. A similar feeling is if you've ever like ridden on a bike downhill and got scared of how fast you were going and then you're like, ah, I've done that recently. Too. Oh, yeah. But now imagine these feelings. But imagine that feeling at 150 or 200 miles per hour. That's what racing is all about. Now, are you impressed yet?
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> and a little so scared. So exciting.
1: <laughs> a little scared. Yeah. <laughs> Now, first things first, in case you're not familiar about racing or wondering why it's exciting to watch 40 people make left turns um, for up to 600 miles, I want to tell you a little more about it. There are different kinds of racing. One is called NASCAR, which is an acronym which stands for the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. It oversees many types of racing across the country. The three top series under NASCAR banner are the Monster Energy Cup Series, which used to be the Sprint Cup Series, and then the Xfinity, which is now, uh, which used to be the Nationwide Series, and then the Camping World Truck Series. Now, when most people say NASCAR, they are actually referring to the Monster Energy Cup or the formerly Sprint Cup Series. Right.
0: And to make it even more confusing, when I was watching it, the Winston Cup Series.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's very confusing. I, it, yeah, actually it, th- racing and um, the titles of this is so complicated. Even though I grew up watching it, I had my dad look over what I'm saying right now just to fact check me, just to make sure that, you know, me, Leah, and my dad all went through all this information just to, just to be sure. <laughs> exactly.
0: Because it matters, <laughs> especially if you're a race car fan.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. We don't want to get completely off the wall. (laughs) Now, another form of racing is IndyCar, which is open-wheel racing and famous for the Indianapolis 500, which Janet also participated in, as Leah said. Now, if you're confused, it's okay. We'll work through this all together. Now, let's get to a little bit more of background. The first American automobile race is generally thought to be the Thanksgiving Day Chicago Times-Herald race of November 28th, 1895 press coverage was at the event first um aroused significant american interest in the automobile now this is thought to be the first recorded one i read about races a couple years earlier than this but nothing quote uh, quite official right. now this course was 54.36 miles out and back and it was not a circular track now, Frank Doria won the race in 7 hours and 53 minutes, beating the other 5 entrants. So there was only 6 people in this race. It was straight, out, and back. I mean, very different than what racing is right. now today. and a long
0: race, yeah.
1: In a lot of ways, yes. So according to the NASCAR official website, in the beginning, race cars were driven off the street and onto the track. But as safety technology advanced, changes were made to the cars. Now, stock car racing in the United States has its origins in bootlegging during the Prohibition, which I double-checked this and it's right. I thought it sounded crazy enough to be false, but apparently it's true. Oh yeah, <laughs> started
0: with the moonshiners. I'm very familiar. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. <laughs> So, which kind of explains the nowadays hillbillies kind of being associated with NASCAR, right. like, just as joke. Yes. Like, I never got that joke before. See, now
0: it all makes sense. It's like, well, that's kind of the stereotype of where it started. Yeah.
1: That makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. now. Um <laughs> Now, drivers ran bootleg whiskey, which was made primarily in the Appalachian region of the United States. Bootleggers needed to distribute their products, and they typically used small, fast vehicles to better evade the police. They eventually moved on to moonshine, and then they started putting on their own races for pride and profit. So, I guess that's pretty It's fun. a very
0: colorful history. <laughs>
1: oh, Yeah. <laughs> Now, in the 1920s and 30s, the Daytona Beach became known as the place to set world land speed records, replacing France and Belgium in the preferred locations with eight consecutive world records set between 1927 and 1935. Now, a historic race between Ransom Olds and Alexander Winston Winton in 1903, the beach became a mecca for racing enthusiasts. Fifteen records were sent on what became the Daytona Beach Road Course between 1905 and 1935. Now, NASCAR was first formed by Bill France Sr. in 1948 to regulate stock car racing in the U.S. There was a requirement that any car entered be made entirely of parts available to the general public through automobile dealers. Nowadays, there are much stricter rules and controls on the cars. Each car is built basically from the ground up by teams based on one of the car models that is approved for that particular race. The headlights and paint job on the cars are actually all aesthetics. It's a big, at least nowadays, it's a big car wrap for the sponsors, and the headlights are really just stickers as well. Each car is unique to the teams, and the teams then choose their drivers. Now, as far as the car wraps go, I don't know how they did it Um in the early days with Janet, but that's how they do it now. I, I... right
0: exactly, and I'm not a hundred percent certain uh, either at that time because I know it was changing a lot, especially through the '70s, of how much the cars right. were stock, how much they were built, and how much were stickers. And by the way, if you like the movie yep. Cars, that's why uh, Lightning McQueen is always called that's stickers because he's all made of stickers.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's that's based on <laughs> fact, right there. Now, what still does remain the same is the teams actually choose their drivers. Now, to clear another thing up, a driver can make their own team, which Janet did do at some at one point. Mm-hmm. But it's not. But a team and a driver are not always and not usually the same. It's this kind of combobulation of different things. Right. <laughs> drivers
0: can move and teams can reshuffle around drivers. Yeah,
1: right. Yep. So to actually go into a race, you have to first qualify. Now, you do this by driving your built and ready car onto the track, and you drive for your fastest lap. Now, depending on the race and depending on the time period, it depends on how many laps you're allowed to take. Some, qualific- some qualifiers are like you have a warm-up lap, your second lap is your qualifying lap, and then you have a cool-down lap. Um, Some of them are like you just keep racing and racing or going around and around until you get your best lap and you're happy with it. I mean, and it also just depends on what era we're talking about. So it's all different kinds, but you still have to qualify to race. Now, all three NASCAR National Series will set a specific number of starting positions by timed laps and have a specific number for starting positions. So, for example, if there's 40 people racing, you'll be either one through 40 and it'll be depending on your qualifying lap right now rules have changed over the years and they're different for each race but the whole time it's always about the bigger picture calculating speed the curve of the road if there's any debris when to take your pit stop watching out for accidents reflections of the lights and all of that at up to 200 miles per hour it's it's insane and it's it's crazy to think about because you have to th- you have to calculate when you go get gas when other people are going to go get gas i mean there's just so much to think about and but you're sitting on your couch watching people go around in circles but like it, it's just so much more intense than it might appear.
0: I think of it as a game of chess going 200 miles an hour on wheels. Absolutely. you've got a lot Absolutely. of things to think about and a lot of variables that so can make many. the difference. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Leah, I think you have more to tell us about women in NASCAR specifically, yes, right? Yes, I
0: do. So I research the gals in NASCAR. And, uh, you know, I, I sometimes forget that in sports there are variations on firsts and records. So Janet Guthrie was not actually the first woman in NASCAR. She was the first woman in NASCAR on a super speedway. I forget how specific uh, sports records are. Uh, However, but at the start in 1949, there were three women speeding around dirt tracks in NASCAR's first years of the Strictly Stock Cup Series. So the very first race of the very first season of NASCAR, Sarah Sarah Christensen took the wheel and finished 14th. Not bad, considering it's reported that her car was overheating at the time.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: So Sarah would compete in nearly the whole first season and take home a fifth and a sixth place finish. The next year, she competed in one race and then she decided to retire. (sighs) But Sarah Christensen is the first woman in a NASCAR race. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Louise Smith came to Daytona to watch the second ever NASCAR race of the season, but she just couldn't stand the idea of watching it and not racing in it. So she entered her car. Now, Louise wasn't the only gal that was in that race either. So Sarah was there, but there was also Ethel Mobley. Now, three gals were racing on the sand beaches of Daytona with 24 other guys, and that must have been an awesome sight to see.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. That's so cool.
0: So Louise would go on to race a total of 11 more NASCAR races over the next three years. Her best finish was 16th on the dirt of Langhorne. Now, Ethel, this gal had gasoline in her veins. Well, I mean, metaphorically, of course. Uh, She was from the famous Flock family. Her father named her after his favorite gasoline. We're not joking.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
0: So three of her brothers not only raced in NASCAR, but were considered the early pioneers of the sport. Oh, and did I mention that the flock family were also moonshiners and they also did the racing for fun? Of
1: course, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly.
0: Those moonshine and roots. Gotta love them. So, Ethel completed in two NASCAR races. She raced against her brothers. At Daytona, she finished 11th, which was higher than two of the three brothers. But Tim Flock got second place. Oh, yeah. But she did pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. As quick and as awesome as these gals were, they would only stay for the first couple of years of NASCAR. Some of the gals went into modified events or the all-female race teams, and some of those were sponsored by NASCAR, and some of them weren't. The sport changed very quickly over time from dirt tracks to paved banked tracks, and then the super speedways. It would actually be 24 years before another woman was in the pack competing at a NASCAR race, and that gal was Janet Guthrie. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because we have to figure out how did Janet get behind the wheel? So we should start with where she grew up. And Phoebe, you were digging into this.
1: Oh, absolutely. So fortunately, we found her biography called Janet Guthrie, A Life at Full Throttle. At first, we really couldn't find much about her personal life online. I was getting really concerned, um, but I was like, There's, she's got a book. How is there no information on her? Right. It's in the book. Um, <laughs> on her personal life. It's in, it's in her book. <laughs> Thankfully, Leah found her book and sent me pages of her um, personal life. So that's where I'm able to get all of this information. Yes, um, And she has a lot of really cool childhood stories. And her her way of writing is very fun and personable. So yes. if you want to read her book, it's really definitely worth it.
0: Absolutely. Highly recommend it.
1: Absolutely. Now, Janet Guthrie was born in Iowa City, Iowa, on March 7th, 1938. Her father was William Leon Guthrie, and he was raised on a large homestead farm in Iowa. So he at first raised cows on a farm. Now, her mother was Jean Ruth Midcliffe, and she was raised in Brazil. Her parents were Presbyterian missionaries. Now, when her mother came into a small inheritance, they spent it on flying lessons. Now, Janet said, My father was always drawn to the idea of flight and experimented. Chickens that he tossed from the top of the windmill fluttered to the ground unharmed. Cats sent aloft on his kites, were agated by the ascents, returned to Earth astonishingly calm. I mean, these are different, like, flight techniques and, and just studying it through the ways of, that animals deal with it. Right. Now, by the time Janet was born, her father was managing the Iowa City, Iowa Airport. Now, her parents herself and her brother moved to Miami, Florida when she was three. Her parents were both pilots. Janet recalls a story when she was four, that her father got her her first bicycle. And in less than two hours, she learned how to ride it without training wheels, without much help, without anything. She was determined to go fast from a very young age. Now, a race car driver is always asked, how do you get started? And Janet's answer always was that quote i was born adventurous and grew up insufficiently socialized now when janet was 6 her parents found their dreamland and their dream house and they built their own home on many acres of land actually they didn't build it from the ground up they moved their house and they moved it onto this piece of land their roof was busted i mean it was this big ordeal and it was all with I believe, three small children under the age of six. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's an adventure. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, Janet attended Miss Harris's Florida School for Girls through a scholarship for all but one of her elementary through high school years. She was very gifted, very talented. She learned reading at a young age. She was always very smart and quick, not just with physical activities, but, um, with the way she learned as well. Nice. Now, when Janet was just a teen, her mother was diagnosed with tuberculosis and she was shipped off a couple hundred miles away to a sanitarian. Now their family returned to Iowa and Janet learned to cook and clean and do all the household uh, chores and such. Now her mother was gone for three months before she was permitted to go home, but she was still on bed rest for a while. They had housekeepers, and they had this anxious teen, Janet. And Janet says in her book that she was kind of like uh, a very anxious child. She was, well, not anxious, but like rambunctious and wanted what she wanted and stuff like that. So she was always a handful, <laughs> but she was always headstrong in what she wanted to do, which is really cool.
0: Nice, yeah.
1: I'm so glad to learn that because you don't get that learning. Or reading articles online. Right. That's not the kind of like I know so much. I understand her so much better now,
0: mm-hmm. beyond the statistics. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Exactly. Now flying had always been a part of Janet's life, as we know. But by the time she was sixteen, she begged her father to teach her, and it was the cycle of him teaching her. She'd do something wrong. He'd yell at her. She'd cry. Then she'd get over it and beg for more lessons. Mm-hmm. This seems like a like a very um, typical father daughter thing. It sounds, about I mean, right. yeah, <laughs> it sounds about right. Yeah. Well, eventually, she was then given a new teacher, and she and flying was her first biggest pa- passion. Then, she attended the University of Michigan. At the end of her sophomore year, she took a year to study and get her commercial pilot's license and flight instructor's rating. So, now she can fly, she has her license, she's got the whole ordeal. Mm -hmm. And, And, on top of that, she spent two months hitchhiking around Europe, which is super cool. Yeah! So, then she graduated from the University of Michigan in June of 1960 with a bachelor's in physics.
0: Nice. Well, with that degree in physics and her commercial pilot's license, she went to New York to work as a research and development engineer for Republic Aviation. So even though Janet loved to fly, it actually wasn't a career option. Airlines didn't even hire women, and the U.S. military didn't let women fly. Space, however, might have been the new frontier for Janet. So in her biography, uh, she talks about how she was working on programs that were precursors to Project Apollo while she was at Republic Aviation. And I just find this fascinating that we started this season with the Hidden Figures gals, you know, of like the Mercury Project and the Apollo missions. And now it's our last block. And so we're kind of like bookending sports gals. And we're talking about NASA again. Um, We don't plan this, I swear.
1: (laughs) No, we don't. We don't. We had no idea. And I saw that it she I, I was reading through janet's um wikipedia and I was like, NASA? She was She was like, right. could it be a part of NASA? This is a thing? Kate needs, I mean, <laughs> Leah needs this. This yes. is her section. <laughs> this is her jam. <laughs> I do
0: love it. I do. This is beautiful. Oh, so Janet's work on Project Apollo, uh, NASA had started a scientist astronaut program, and so Janet applied. She got through the first round, but unfortunately that was as far as it got in terms of flying in space. Four women were initially picked out of Four hundred applicants, but later all of them were rejected for the mission. Janet got a signed rejection letter from Donald K. Slayton. Now, with being fully grounded not only as a pilot but also as an astronaut, she set her mind to her second passion, which was racing, not a bad uh backup, mm-hmm. if I do say. <laughs>
1: um yeah that's not bad at all <laughs> yeah her life certainly was never boring and it
0: was never slow
1: <laughs> no never slow it makes sense why she got into racing right. it's fast yeah in fact i read a little bit that she um was upset as a teen for a little while that her life was never boring and she was never normal uh-huh. which i feel like we like all of us who were who are a little unusual go through that phase. Oh, totally. I know I went through that phase. Oh yeah. I was like, oh, why do I have to be so so uh unusual? Why can't I be normal? And now I'm like, well now I don't want to be normal, but thanks. <laughs> You've
0: always gotta have that resistance for a little bit just to kind of find you yeah. know find your comfort you gotta, zone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, as far as racing goes, it was the early 1960s and Janet had purchased a jaguar xk120 coupe yes okay (laughs) and then she began competing now this led to the purchase of a jaguar xk140 for a competition in sports car club of america races now her career in physics slowly shifted to a career in sports car racing and by 1972 she was involved in racing on a full-time basis Not necessarily NASCAR yet, not necessarily anything completely official that we've heard of by now, but she was racing full-time, and she was doing what she loved. Yeah. Now, along the way, she posted two class victories, and in 12 hours of Sebring, which... I mean, that sounds crazy. It's a
0: twelve-hour race. Yeah, there's a Daytona 24 yeah. uh, as well. Yeah, it's a long, long race. Yeah,
1: yeah. I can safely say that's insane, but <laughs> that's cool. You know, it's a challenge. I did a forty eight I mean, I did a 48-hour film festival, so maybe it's comparable. Oh, yeah. not know. oh yeah. I, that's I pretty know.
0: comparable. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, unlike Janet's male racing counterparts at the time, she didn't have sponsorships or funding. Now this is important because funding buys and builds the cars, hires the crew, and et cetera, et cetera. Now this is not a sport you can do alone. Again, much like filming. Mm-hmm. So Janet built her own engines, did her own bodywork, and in order to compete, she tow- she would tow her Jaguar XK140 behind an old station wagon, which she bought for forty five dollars, mm-hmm. by the way, and she just towed it around the country. At night, she'd sleep in the car, which, I mean, that is some serious grit right there. Yeah, you
0: gotta save money. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, Janet had increasing success on the Sport Car Club of America circuit, winning several major races. Now, from 1966 to 1971, she was a member of an all-woman racing team. Amongst all of this, sleeping in her car... Not being as rich as everybody else. um, She was not sure if anybody else knew about the uncomfortable arrangement she put herself in. She put herself through, through this for 13 years. And she said, I don't know. It was doable. If you desire strong enough, anything is doable. Which I just love that quote. Yeah. That's pretty much my life motto.
0: There you go. Right. Exactly.
1: Yep. And there was usually a place to get cleaned up every time they went to a different race. So she said she'd sneak out of her car in the morning, put on a facade, and look as if she was just as rich as the rest of her competitors. She said that back in 1976, men were not shy about sharing their opinion that women should not race. The general idea was that women don't have the strength, the endurance, the emotional stability, and women are going to endanger our lives. And you could read that on the newspapers most every day, she said, which I mean, to be put through that. Mm -hmm. is just it it seems unbearable to me honestly yeah
0: oh absolutely it's it's kind of like a kick me when i'm down sort of thing just just give me the chance you know
1: exactly like i i know when people are thinking about that in like say the film industry however i don't always hear it in my face or hear in the newspaper or something like it's it's like oh geez just of course reinforce what i already know or what i already think that you're thinking. Or your deepest fear. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. There was another quote that said the only way to deal with that was on the track. She said, there was no other way to do it. The guys just had to get the experience of driving against me. And then, as I say, things changed. You could call it cognitive dissonance. If the guys were saying this driver is a female and thereof she is no good, and then the no good driver blows your doors off, you have to change your position just a little bit.
0: I like that. (laughs) <laughs> it's I perfect. like it a lot. It is. <laughs> yep. Well, let's see. If this no good one beats you, what does that say about you?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
0: Just another racer. <laughs> yes. Yep.
1: Now, Janet was met with social resistance when she tried to qualify for the NASCAR Winston Cup Stock Car Race. In 1976, it was the height of the women's liberation movement when social activists like Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug were challenging the patriarchal society around them. She said, from my perspective, there had always been women in sports car racing, which is what I came out of. I knew being a woman didn't make any difference. The only trouble was nobody else seemed to know that. There was quite a bit of commotion. There was a humongous amount of controversy, she recalled. There were drivers in... The um, USAC President Dick King's office pounding on his desk, demanding that he keep me out of the race at Trenton. And so on and so forth. It was a great surprise to me because, after all, I had 13 years of sports car racing experience. I had won my class twice at Sebring. I had driven a couple of Daytona 24 hours. I had a championship or two. Mm -hmm. She said that in all those 13 years, being a woman had been an issue maybe twice. I had great good fortune of an even handed upbringing where there was no idea girls couldn't do this or that. I'm the oldest of five boys and girls, and my parents brought up the girls equal to the boys.
0: I love that. That's, that's the difference right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think because she had that really strong foundation, um, she holds the honor of being the first woman race car driver at both the Indy 500 and the Daytona 500. And she did both of these in the same year. It was 1977. It's just amazing to me that it was the same year. Yeah. When Janet qualified for her first Daytona 500, it is important to note in this historical context, this is before NASCAR was televised live from flag to flag. It would actually be two right. more years before CBS would actually host the very first uh, live airing of the Daytona 500. So families weren't gathered around the TV yet to see Janet's first race. They were in the stands or they were listening on radio. So it's it's a little different from what I kind of had, you know what I mean, in my head sort of thing when I was listening yeah, to her story. Yeah, totally.
1: So, yeah, me too. So,
0: Janet would start the field in 39th in the Kelly Girl car. Uh, she would be the first woman to race the Daytona 500, the first woman on a NASCAR super speedway, and the fourth woman ever in a NASCAR race. Janet would fight her way up the pack and finish the 1977 Daytona 500 in 12th place, which I love. Yay. It's a hard race. Yeah, it's a no, very that's hard great. Race. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, when it comes to IndyCar, more specifically the Indy 500, a few months later, it was because of Rolla Volstead. Now, Rolla was a car builder and a car owner. And if you're kind of new to the auto racing, um, car owners secure the drivers, the sponsors, the pit crew, and tons of money uh, to try to get their teams to win. Now, Rolla had a long history with IndyCar. His first car qualified for the Indy 500 in 1964, and it was an Offenhauser engine that was driven driven by Lee Sutton. He would go on to field fifteen more cars that raced in the Indy five hundred. And in nineteen seventy six he told People magazine, quote, I wanted to satisfy my own aspiration of being the first to enter a woman at Indy, end quote. Yay. He continues, quote, I asked around for the top female drivers and everyone answered Janet Guthrie. That's right. Wow. (laughs) So Janet and Rola made an attempt to qualify in 1976 for the Indy 500, but they fell short due to mechanical issues. That wasn't the only disappointment. There was also vocal opposition to a woman at the track, kind of like Phoebe was saying. In an Indy Star interview, Janet recalled, quote, all I had to do was open the newspaper and there was another driver saying, our blood is going to be on your hands if you don't keep her out of this. I mean, that's whoo, that's desperation right there. So. Janet was taken aback um, that there was such a surprising amount of hostility. That was until she qualified for the 1977 Indy 500, that is. Qualifying pressure was intense. Uh, there was car issues. Janet had a spin out in practice that banged up the car and her ribs. They knew about the car. She didn't tell anybody about her ribs.
1: Of course she didn't. Why would she? (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know. It's like, no, there's enough to deal with. I'm not telling anybody that, you know, I'm having any kind of problems. (laughs) I'm fine. Let's fix the car. Let's qualify for this. Let's do this. Uh, Right. There was also more cars trying to qualify than there were spots in the field. So there were people that were going home. She needed a good lap and her time was very essential. So turn by turn, Janet found the speed, gave the car what it needed and pushed it as far as she thought it could go without putting it in the wall. Once proving herself, she secured the 26th spot in the field and Janet Guthrie became the first woman in the industry. Indianapolis 500
1: woohoo which tell me how far away is that track for you uh
0: the track is about 45 minutes away from me. So and Yay! I visited it oh, wow. a couple of times. I visited before actually I even moved here. Um I saw a race and I've gone to the museum and actually my husband does a marathon oh, wow. that actually takes place on the track. Wait, um, like a so, running marathon. Yeah. <laughs> a running marathon, yes, there's no cars on it at the time, but you can run the track. Right.
1: I didn't I didn't I didn't yes. know oh, he did absolutely. that. That's so cool. <laughs> And I'm, like, I think about 45 minutes from the Wilkes-Barre oh, race track. there you go. Visit. It's yeah. really,
0: really fun. We've got other dirt track and amateur tracks around here, too. Uh, but it's very mm-hmm. hard. You know, you think of Indy, and you're like, well, of course, we have the Indianapolis 500.
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
0: <laughs> yes. Now, here's the ironic bit of the thing in my town. Um, this is actually a race that started in 1911. Uh, so it it is no small feat <laughs> that it has right, taken yeah. that long for a woman to be in the field. And also to some, change is hard. So Janet constantly had to prove that she was worthy to be in the driver's seat to critics, to fans, to fellow drivers, and to corporate sponsors. It's a very difficult position to be in because um, if you do it right, you'll open the door to more women. And if you don't, the sport kind of stays in the dark ages. And there's no guidepost. You know, there's no book on how to do this. You're making this up as you go along. And you just really hope that you do enough, uh, personally and also professionally that you can prove that gals have what it takes to compete in a big race such as this. So I felt for her amazingly because the pressure at Indy 500 is just modern day intense.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, let alone Absolutely. 77. My goodness, <laughs> yeah.
0: So it is that first Indy 500 that Janet's engine failed around lap 10, and the team must have taken that energy to heart and used it to good use because the next year they came back to Indy 500, they qualified again, and Janet finished in ninth place, which is amazing. Yay. Yeah, it's
1: yeah, that's also great. a
0: very difficult race. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Now, Janet would be in two more Indy 500s in her 11 total Indy race career. She would become even her own car owner as well as driver in for the 1979 Indy 500. Janet would continue in NASCAR as well until 1980. She struggled to get funding and sponsorship, and she was only in a handful of races because of it. And that is something that's actually still true to this day for women in motorsports. Now, Janet said in her biography, quote, I kept seeking sponsorships through the beginning of 1983. Then I realized that if I kept that up, I was likely to jump out a high window. It was time to let go to acknowledge with unspeakable regret that my chance at winning top level races had been cut short, chopped off. So, yeah. Oh, wow. I know. It's heartbreaking to me. It really is. It is. It's like stopping because of money. Yeah. So, it is. Yeah. Ugh, so, what was Janet's life like off the track?
1: Well, Janet actually did get married. She got married in 1989 to Warren Levine. The two met through a mutual friend who was also a pilot. Now, Warren was a pilot for the American Airlines and long supported her in her achievements. The two moved to Colorado and Janet began to write her autobiography and took up skiing. So, yay! Thankfully, she wrote her autobiography. Yes, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Now, I read on a website by mindstuff.org that Janet raced in 33 cup races and made 11 IndyCar stars over five years. And while she said her racing career was mostly viewed with absolute hearsay by men, she did have her backers. Well, as long as she kept them quiet. She said, I soon learned not to acknowledge them publicly because if I thanked them and that got into the newspaper, then the next day they wouldn't speak to me. It was a completely different thing. Danica's been driving NASCAR for three years or something like that. All the guys know how she drives by now, and that's 95% of the battle right there. Right. So what's really cool to me is that um, Danica Patrick is the first woman... Race car driver that I saw in my life. Right. So I think it's really cool that actually Janet Guthrie is still alive and has commented on Danica Patrick's racing as is actually proud of her and is almost like um continuing her legacy in a way
0: yeah absolutely yes
1: so that's really exciting to me and that goes kind of along with the next thing is the next step is sparking the desire to race in other little girls the new generation never followed guthrie and she was skeptical that danica could usher in a generation of female racers but she said, there's so many talented women drivers out there that do not have access to the kind of machinery that Danica has. She said, I think if they had top-notch equipment, they might be capable of doing the same type of thing. Yep. So, I mean, it's just so cool that they can comment on each other's lives. Um, and as far as Danica goes, she's she's actually retired from racing at... At this point, oh, as, of May, oh, yeah, as of May, I think. Yeah, I think it was as of May. Oh, gotcha. Oh, that's very new. I know. But she's becoming an entrepreneur. Sweet. She's starting her own business. She's, I think, she has um, some sort of charity that she's doing. I mean, like, very she's cool. doing a lot of stuff. She wrote a book. I mean, it's pretty awesome. Oh, sweet. And as of right now, a woman in NASCAR has never won a race Danica has come to third I believe right I know she's come close on both Indy
0: and NASCAR yes Mm -hmm.
1: but um a woman still has never won a NASCAR race
0: that record is still out there and it's just there's something in me that tells me that there is a little girl going around a dirt track right now in a little go-kart going it's gonna be me
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It gives me hope Absolutely. For the <laughs> it does. It's so cu- oh, it's so cool to think about. Yeah.
0: So when it comes to Janet's um, awards and accolades, uh, in 1979, Janet was featured in the Super Sisters Trading Card Series. I absolutely love these cards from the 70s. They're freaking really cool. Uh, They were designed to promote women's equality and the celebration of women nearing the end of the 70s women's movement. And you can catch them like on Pinterest quite a bit, and they're really cool. So in 1980, Janet was inducted into the very new International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. She was one of the very first inductees. In 2006, Janet was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. And it's actually kind of interesting to note that she was inducted in the same years as Dale Earnhardt, Jack Roush, Humpy Wheeler and Johnny Rutherford.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah, all That's of them crazy. Were kind of,
0: you know, very much part of uh, her world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, supported her, challenged her. You know what I mean? Like, I just thought it was neat. The, the the class, if you will, they always say that for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the class of, yeah. you know, this year. So the, the 2006 class was actually really cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. Uh,
0: Janet's racing helmet and race suit are also at the the Smithsonian Museum as well, which I always find super fascinating. Yeah. Can
1: you imagine, like, a suit that you wear in your career, like just eventually being in a museum right like well there's being that's in a museum and then about. there's
0: being in like either the louvre or the smithsonian i mean like those are the big right. museums yeah, yeah. So that's a collection right. that they that they hold dear and tours around the country as well so um right. so there's a lot of exposure having anything of history in the smithsonian so it's a big deal right
1: <laughs> yeah yeah definitely.
0: And then in 2005, she published her autobiography that we have been talking about throughout the show, which is Life at Full Throttle. Um, Since then, she has been giving speaking engagements and interviews in the world of sports ever since. In fact, at the time we're recording this, Janet is 80 years old and still the topic of conversation in my town of Indianapolis, especially when the 500 rolls around. We always remember Janet. Yeah. (laughs)
1: That's so great.
0: (laughs) Yes. So now it comes to legacy, and she's she is still building a legacy. She
1: is. No, she is, for sure. Now, when it comes to legacy, we're extremely fortunate that Janet actually summed up her hope in her autobiography, Life at the Full Throttle. She wrote, if I contributed one small bit to the changing perceptions of women's abilities, I'm glad I did it. It was not the reason that I did what I did. I drove race cars because I could not do otherwise, because it was an obsession and a passion. Not everyone wants to drive race cars, but for each person, the right challenge is out there. The challenge that is just the right size. The challenge that will evoke the best that a person can be. For women, the Everest of racing remains to be climbed. Someday, a woman will win the Indianapolis 500. Someday, a woman will win the Daytona 500. I wish it could have been the driver. I hope some reader of this book will be. Yeah. And that
0: is what Legacy is. It's removing a barrier Absolutely. so that a path can be laid out for another person to build on it and then remove another barrier and another person to build on it. I mean, Janet, such an important part of history and sports history um, together, you know.
1: Absolutely.
0: I like how she summed up her legacy. How did you feel about it?
1: No, I felt that was perfect. I, I I couldn't say anything better than that.
0: So, Phoebe, what did you learn from this trailblazer?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, one, that it's okay to be stubborn because that leads to knowing what you want. And that also leads to being able to be able to do what you're passionate about. Yes. So that's probably my biggest thing is like I it's okay to be stubborn sometimes. And... It's, you, you know, I I kind of relate to her in the whole woman in a man's world type thing. I mm. love how she approached that because she was like, I never saw it as a woman in a man's in a man's world. I'm just a race car driver. Right. For me, I'm just a filmmaker, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize until after I got into it that there weren't many other women in it. So I was just like, oh, I was I was just doing my thing, like right, you know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And that's the way it's supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah, You find the passion first. You don't want people to be like, there's not many women in it. Oh.
1: Right. (laughs) The
0: passion has to be there. Yes.
1: Exactly. So what about you? Um, I learned
0: a really hard lesson from Janet. And it's one that was kind of in the back of my mind. And you always kind of hope that it's not true. But I think Janet kind of cemented it for me. And it's that the final gatekeeper for women is money. Janet earned that opportunity to be in a race in Daytona 500 and the Indy 500, and because she raced her heart out and she qualified at such a speed that would show she was competitive, she had a chance uh, to get that time because of her hard work and her crew keeping her safe and keeping her fast. But honestly, it could have been anyone in that seat. And it was the height of the women's movement and also Title IX. Uh, Title IX really changed the game. Janet was the best at a time when Linda Ferrari and Rola Vossette, uh were looking to push equality even further. They're like, we see this barrier. Let's, you know, let's move the gate. Uh, they wanted to stand for something. They wanted to make a point. Both Linda and Rola were not high rollers, meaning they were not the 1%. Uh, Uh, With lots of money. They were people who had enough money to invest in a driver for change. And that took a lot of guts. It really, really did. It was a combination of Linda and Rola's money and their beliefs that got Janet to be the first. But it was also the money why Janet had to retire. Uh, she didn't stop loving racing. That passion never went away. The money did. So, to have a competitive race team in IndyCar or NASCAR nowadays, you're looking at one to $2 million a year. But note that those front runners, the ones that win, a lot consistently, are spending up to $10 million a year on a team. That's a lot of wow. money to be competitive. So if you have somebody who's always winning spending $10 million, and you're starting out and you're spending a million, oh, I don't see a level playing field there except for luck. Luck always <laughs> can make things a right. little bit more even, but you can't rely on it. So over the 107 years of Indy 500, there has only been nine Mm. female drivers. Uh, Granted, women weren't even allowed into the pits until 1971. And of those nine drivers, they had the skills. They had the guts. And they had skin thicker than most of us would ever dream of. But what they didn't have was money. So, money was like, you know, for spare extra tires, for a solid chassis, for a replacement engine, for gearboxes, for, you know, the fuel. That ain't actually free. Uh, And neither are the entry fees. There is also uh, this peace of mind that as a driver, if you push the car too far and find that breaking point, you can't afford to buy a new one if you hit the wall. And that peace of mind is expensive. It limits you as a driver. Right. Never mind that high-end equipment that will give any driver a competitive edge, if only they had the money. So Janet actually suggested this. She said, quote, what this sport needs is a woman with all the stuff it takes, plus her own fortune. That's what we need now. That was her advice recently. Yeah, Um, I've seen this in racing, and goodness, I have seen it in filmmaking. Um, Expecting a talented woman who has already shown her worth in an amateur setting, then giving her half as much money to compete with those who have been able to play the game for decades with twice as much money. That ability to do so much better with half the amount of resources takes a miracle. But you know what? It still happens, though. Uh, In racing, we have Sarah Fisher, and we have Danica Patrick. And in filmmaking, we have Patty Jenkins, and we have Ava DuVernay. So it happens. Um, So, I mean, I really learned, and I know I feel like this is a long rant, but I really feel that sports is not an even playing field for only one reason, money. And it's our perception of who earns it. It's what resources their money can buy. And it's how long they have to stay in the game is determined by money. So it's time to stop waiting on miracles and just start investing in women. That's really what I learned from Janet. We need to invest in women. In all different career fashions. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. That's a fantastic takeaway. Why,
0: thank you. It was a hard one to learn because I don't want a gatekeeper to be money. You know, I just don't want it to be. I want it to be talent. I want it to be hard work. I want it to be opportunity. But ooh, money—that's a hard one for me. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It's
0: like, er, shucks. <laughs> well, that wraps it up for us. Join us next week as we talk about the most amazing athlete of the 20th century—a gal who played nearly every sport and one who the New York Times said, "quote, she has the golden touch of Midas." Babe Dickerson Zalarius is next. So, until then, we leave you with this quote from Janet. When history of what women accomplished in the past is ignored or trivialized, each new generation of achieving women must first reinvent the wheel. That is an obstacle not to be underestimated. For more information about this week's Gal, or to check out our previous episodes, visit galsguide.org. To support the show, visit the Gal's Guide Patreon page. We love our patrons and offer exclusive perks and behind-the-scenes access For as little as $1
1: a month. Thank you so much for subscribing to Your Gal Friday.